0: All right, let's turn now to Psalm 133, our Old Testament reading, Psalm 133, a psalm of ascents. Let's give all our attention now to God's holy word. Behold how good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. It is like the precious oil upon the head, running down on the beard, the beard of Aaron, running down on the edge of his garments. It is like the dew of Hermon, descending upon the mountains of Zion. For there the Lord commanded the blessing, life forevermore. And our sermon text is Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. Philippians 2, 1-11. God's Word. Therefore, if there is any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and mercy, fulfill my joy by being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, But in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant, the Father. Amen. Let's pray together. Lord, your word is perfect, reviving our souls. Your word is sure. It makes us wise. Your word is right. It brings joy to our hearts. Your word is pure. Your word is clean. Your word is true. Your word is altogether righteous. And Lord, your word is more to be desired than gold. Your word is more to be delighted in and savored than honey. So, Lord, we pray that you'd give us an appetite for your word and a sense of its real value and its its great worth. Father, we pray that the words of my mouth and the meditation of all our hearts would be acceptable in your sight. For you, O Lord, are our rock and our redeemer. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen uh, we were at a we, we brought uh, we brought the series in Genesis up to chapter eleven. I'm going to be away next week, and um, the week after that uh, two weeks after that we're going to be doing a pulpit swap, so that we're going to be interrupted here for a few weeks with our evening services. I didn't want to jump into Genesis chapter twelve with uh, the, the narrative of Abraham, start the, and, then, and then abruptly leave it for a while. So I decided to do just look at a, a separate text tonight, a, and uh, Philippians 2 came to mind. Philippians 2, 1 through 11 here, words that have been much on my mind and heart lately. And uh, to begin, this, this question, what should be our mindset as Christians? What attitude should we have as Christians towards one another, especially in the body of Christ? Uh, How should we approach relationships in our church? Um, The world approaches relationships a certain way, and and that's the way that um, our sinful flesh would also approach relationships. Uh, Oftentimes that that can infect our church and and creep into the church, and we can live like we've never heard of the gospel. Uh, We can live like we've never heard of forgiveness of sins. Um, we can have that, that mindset this world has of a, a quid pro quo um, you do this I'll do I'll, then I'll then I'll repay you in kind um, our relationships can 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 be a transaction I'll, I'll serve you if there's something in it for me um, I'll, I'll 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 give back something equal if you serve me in a particular way but but I'm not going to be sacrificing for you um, that can affect our church can affect our marriages um, can affect our parenting um, in fact, our friendships in the church, but that 's antithetical that 's the, the opposite of of the gospel and the mindset that we are to have in christ paul 's writing this little little letter to the Church in Philippi to encourage them in the faith and in particular in Christian unity. This is a church that is near and dear to his heart. Um, there's not, a, there, there's not a big conflict going on. There's not a big moral failure going on that he has to address. There's not a big doctrinal issue that's a red flag that he has to address, like, say, 1 uh, Corinthians or Galatians, some of his other letters, uh, which are quite fiery and um, uh, have plenty of rebukes in them. This letter is actually basically a long thank you note that Paul's writing to the church in Philippi. They have supported him in his ministry. Uh, they, they, they sent Epaphroditus uh, to him with a gift to support him, to encourage him, to see how he's doing. And he's thanking them in this letter, and he's giving them an update on how he's doing in this letter. And he's encouraging them to be faithful in the gospel and continue to rejoice in Christ. And to give thanks and everything. But there is one little issue in the church that it seems like he's caught wind of. Um, We see this uh, in in just a couple little places in the letter, that there seems to be some disunity in the church. Not anything big, perhaps, but something that's beginning to seep in. Um, In chapter 4, verse 2, he says this, I entreat Euodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. These two women in the church in Philippi seem to have some kind of disagreement, it's some kind of conflict seems to have come up. And perhaps it's spread beyond these two women. And perhaps people in the church are taking one side and some are taking the other. Um, and, and Paul is saying, I entreat them to agree in the Lord, to have unity together. And then, of course, also we see here in chapter 2 in Philippians, Paul calling the church to unity. So there's a crack in the church. It's small, but it's a, it's a crack. And if you don't fix it, it's going to get worse. It's going to get wider. Um, it's going to bring more separation. It's going to bring more, uh, more, more hurt to people. And it's also going to bring more shame to the name of Christ if they don't address it. So Paul is writing to address this and to encourage them in, in unity. Unity is vital in a church. Unity uh, is, is crucial. It's critical to, a, to, to the, the health and well-being of a church. Think of how close this was to the heart of Christ. As he's there the night before his crucifixion, he's praying for his disciples, and he's praying for the church throughout the ages who won't see him but yet will believe in him. Um, What's he praying for? Well, a number of things. One of them, one of the main things he's praying for is unity. We read this in John 17. The glory that you've given me, I've given them, that they may be one even as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and have loved them even as you loved me. Jesus' prayer is that the unity in the church reflect the unity in the Godhead. That the unity of the church should have a powerful witness in the world. That that in the church we have all these disparate people coming together, rich, poor, male, female, old, young, and and we bring them all together together Jew, Gentile, we we bring them all together and there's unity there. It's a great testimony to the fact that we are all one in Christ. It looks good on paper. How about in practice? Sounds good, right? Unity, right? Overlook these things. We're one in Christ. But what about in practice? Because if you stick around a church for a while, stick around a marriage for a while, you're going to realize there's more than one sinner here. Right? There's a, there's a couple of us. And what happens when you bring one selfish person and one other fundamentally selfish person together is going to be conflict. There's two kids and one cookie. You can anticipate what's about to happen, right? Um, and this is what this is what so often happens in the church and in our marriages and in our other relationships. We're all sinners and we're living in close proximity to each other. And so unity seems a fragile thing. Um, but brothers and sisters, even as we look at that and, and whatever your experience might be of that, of conflict and relationships and, um, and, and, and how uh, impossible perhaps it, it seems to have that kind of unity that Paul is asking us to have, commanding us to have here in Philippians, it's not impossible um, because, yes, we are sinners living in close proximity together, but we're also saints living in close proximity proximity together. And the most fundamental thing about us is no longer that we're sinners, but that we're in Christ. That we're Christians, that we've received his grace. We're under his gospel, and that changes everything about us. The gospel gives us peace with God, and then it works out in peace towards each other as well. So there is hope. There is real hope for for true unity in in our relationships. So Philippians two, one through eleven commands us to pursue this unity under the gospel of Christ. Uh, God calls us here to have the mind of Christ because of the humility of Christ. Let's, uh, let's work through this. Let's work through the text then. Let's unpack this together. The first heading here is, have a humble mind, verses 1 through 5. Have a humble mind. Verses 1 through 5. Paul starts in verses 1 to 2. He says, Therefore, if there's any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and mercy, complete my joy by being of the same mind. He's sort of asking rhetorical questions as a springboard into the argument he's about to make and what he's about to command them to do. He says, Do you have any consolation in Christ, Christian? Is Christ a comfort to you? Is he, your prophet, priest, and king, any source of encouragement and strength for you? Is what he's done a help to you? Is it a comfort to know that you've been brought into uh, uh, the, the, the fellowship of, of, of God through Jesus Christ? The obvious answer is yes, of course. Yes, Paul. There is, we do have consolation in Christ. He says, is there any comfort from love? Is there any comfort from knowing that God has poured his love into your heart? That he loves you and he'll never stop loving you. And that his goal is to bring you ever closer into the experience of that love in eternal life in glory. And that nothing can ever separate us from that love. Yes, Paul. It's a huge comfort to know that. We've tasted something of that. And we're hungry for more of it. We, we know that. Paul goes on. Do you have any fellowship in the Spirit? Paul probably has two things in mind when he asks that, I think. Um... Do you have the Spirit of Christ in you? Do you have union with Jesus through the Spirit? Um, Has He he brought brought new life into you? Um, And then the second thing, has the Spirit, if He's united you with Christ, He's brought you into the the kingdom of Christ? He's entered your heart and He's he's bringing you into the new creation uh, in in Jesus Christ that that He is perfecting. We say, yes, Paul, we have tasted something of the work of the Spirit. We have been united with Christ. Uh, we, have, uh, we have begun in this new creation that Christ is, is working on. Then Paul says, is there any affection and mercy, any love and sympathy for each other in the church of Christ? Do you care about your brothers and sisters in the pew beside you? Do you rejoice when they rejoice, mourn when they mourn, um, serve them, love them, care for them? Yes, yes, we do love one another in the church here, Paul. Um, He says, good. My joy is almost complete then. You're doing well, Philippian church. Um, You already know all this. You've already tasted all this. But there's one more thing that's sort of the capstone, right? Picture an arch. You set that last stone and it keeps the whole thing up. Paul says, here's here's the capstone. Here's the piece which will, will make your life together as a church. Hold up. Have the mind of Christ. He lays this out in five, five commands, what it means to have the mind of Christ. He, he gives five commands, and then he wraps it all up in verse 5, saying, have the mind of Christ. So let's, um, let's unpack these five things that he commands us here, these things that we are to seek to grow in. The first thing he says is that we are to have the same mind. Have the same mind. Now he doesn't mean, he's not steamrolling our individuality, Um, of course erasing our differences Um, doesn't mean we all need to like the same music and uh, like the same food and you know uh, and all that but he he means rather think in the same way have the same mindset Um, he's saying think like a christian all of you think like christians think like jesus uh, don't don't think like the world thinks, don't think like your old sinful self thinks, but think like someone who has been given new life in Christ. How do we do that? Well, we train our minds by the Word of God, don't we? Our minds are conformed by by His word. They're, they're, they're transformed. Our minds are transformed through the Word of God. So we need to be a church then. If we're going to have the same mind, It doesn't mean that I come over and say, well, you need to have my mind. We say, let's have Christ's mind. Let's go to the word of God where he shows us what his mind is. And let's have our thinking shaped by and controlled by the Bible. So we need to do that as a church. Relearn how to think according to the Bible. That's a process that never stops. No matter how much you go on in grace and grow in in grace, you've always got to have your mind continually retrained to think like the Bible tells us to think. So that's the first thing he says. Have the same mind. Let everyone in the church train their minds to be like Christ according to the Word of God. The next aspect of this, he says, have the same love. At the deepest level, our loves should match each other's. The thing you love most and the thing your brother or sister in Christ loves most should be identical right? Surface things will be different. Um, One will love the Red Sox. The other will love the Yankees. Uh, One one will love Ford. One will love Chevy. But the, the heart core there is going to be the love of Christ, loving the Lord, loving his word, loving his church. Um, we 've all received the same love from God in Christ we've all been uh, our hearts have been filled with the love of Christ. We have the same command to love God here to, uh, uh, given, given to us and so that should give us a, a unity that transcends any other differences that we have this same love. We should ask ourselves then shouldn 't we if we have the same? love here in our church, in our relationships, in our uh, marriages, etc., that, that um, do, do we have hearts that match up with, the, with, with what we love most? Love to God, love for his people. This will cover a multitude of offenses. It will cover a multitude of differences in personality. All these, all these things that, that threaten our unity. Right, having the same love. Loving God most of all. Loving one another for His sake. That will cover a multitude of, of, of unintended offenses and a multitude of sins. So let's strive for that. Have the same mind and have the same love. Let's, let's work, get to work on our own hearts that we might train our own hearts to love the Lord first and love Him most and then love one another. Then Paul adds, the third thing he says: be of one accord and one mind. the The, the word translated here from the Greek means harmonious. Uh, we should live in harmony with each other, not discord, but uh, but but uh, harmoniously together. One translation gives a, a helpful translation here. It, it renders this like this: We should be united in spirit, intent on one. Purpose. That's the kind of harmony that Paul is talking about. United in spirit, intent on one purpose. If you don't have the same purpose as someone else, you're not going to travel together for a long time. You might, you know, you might travel together for a while if your purposes are running along the same road for a while. But eventually, they're going to take the exit, and you're going to keep going. There won't be unity there. Um, but if we both have the same destination and the same purpose, then we're going to travel together in unity. Um, what's, what's the purpose that should unite us? It's the purpose that comes from God. Not my purpose, not your purpose, but the Lord's purpose for us. So this means that if we want to have unity as a church, we have to know what God's purpose is, what He wants from us, what He wants from us as a church, what He wants from us as individuals. Um, and, and we have to strive to get our purposes aligned with His purposes, right? That He would, that he would get in our hearts and that He would tune them to the purposes of Christ and his word. Um, Otherwise, we're just going to be locked in a tug of war constantly with each other over our competing purposes. Then Paul says, the fourth aspect of having the mind of Christ that he lays out here is this. He says, be humble. Verse 3, be humble. This is probably the hardest verse yet. He says, Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. In Christ's church, there is no place for trying to have the first place. Um, when Jesus caught his disciples arguing about which of them is going to be the greatest, um, he quickly told them that that's not how his kingdom worked. In his kingdom, if you want to be great, you have to become the least and the lowest. If you want to be first, then head to the back of the line. Um, Become like a little child. There's no place in Christ's church or in our relationships as Christians for jockeying for power, or trying to get the upper hand, or using others to achieve your own selfish purpose. Um, there, there's no place in Christ Church and in our relationships for any prideful thought ever that thinks I'm a better Christian than any other Christian. Um, that that uh, that that uh, my calling as a Christian is higher than someone else's calling as a Christian. Um, that's not. There's no. There's no place for that. Um, we are to consider others better than ourselves. This is the ambition that Jesus does call us to. To serve and to humble ourselves. Um, not to seek uh, recognition and influence, but to put others first. Count them as more significant than ourselves. This is so hard for us. We're so naturally inclined to our own, uh, to our own pride and our own selves. When I was in first grade, um, I had a very proud heart. And uh, I thought I was very, very good at basketball. And I distinctly remember playing with some of my friends at recess. We were playing basketball. And uh, I thought that they must be wondering why Seth Dorman was so good at basketball. And I said to them, do you want to know why I'm so good at basketball? And I don't remember their answer. I don't think they even heard me or paid any attention to me, which is good of them. Uh, but that's, that's, uh, that's what my little six-year-old heart was hardwired by sin to think. It's all about me and, and uh, the, the, the praise of others and the favor of others and at, at counting myself more significant than others. And we don't grow out of that, do we? Only by the grace of God do we grow out of counting ourselves as more significant than others. There's no place for that in the church or in our marriages or in our relationships of any kind. Be humble. Count others more significant than yourself. Then the fifth thing Paul says look out for each other. Look out. For each other, he's building on this same idea of humility that he's just talked about, um, um, adding to that idea. He's telling us here that humility is not to be confused with having a pity party for ourselves or a lack of self-esteem. It's not the Dickens villain Uriah Heep from David Copperfield, um, who's always "I'm ever so humble, I'm ever so humble," but he's just uh, you know he's doing it just to get himself ahead. It's 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 a fake humility to get what he wants. Humility is to look not only to your own interests, Paul says here, but also to the interests of others. To look out for others, to see what their needs are, see what their desires are, see what their wants are. And, and not to do it as an act, and, and, uh, and, uh, but, but to do it because underneath um, uh, you are genuinely concerned for their well-being. Or you can, you can act this way, but really it's all about getting praise or, or feeling better about yourself and, and just puffing yourself up, proud of the fact you serve others, or resentful of the fact that you serve others, but you shut your mouth and you do it anyway. But God says, no, the command here is to, uh, to love others with a genuine concern for them as you serve them and to be as concerned for their well-being as you are concerned for your own well-being. So this is, this is how we have the mind of Christ. Uh, this is what we are commanded to have. But Paul doesn't leave it there. He doesn't say, well, good luck, Philippians. I'll see you some other time. Um, because he knows that if he did that, we'd be left hopeless. Um, so he, he goes on. He, he goes on, and then he, he tells us to, to uh, have the mind of Christ. And he, he points us to the, um, to the humility of Christ. In verse 5, he says, have the mind of Christ. He's, he's, he's summarizing what he's just been saying, calling us to imitate Christ, calling us to be like Christ, calling us to say, to take Christ's mindset of humility as a blueprint for our own, uh, but also to, 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 do, to, to, to pursue humility not only because uh, we're trying to imitate Christ, but because Christ has done this for us. Because this is so transformative when Christ has shown you this grace and has humbled himself for you and you've come to see that, then that transforms you from the inside out so that this humility you're called to then is the natural outgrowth of that by the grace of God. That's the only way humility happens. It it will not happen by just determination to do better. It's only as you see how humble Christ was for you that your heart as it grows, in that we'll learn, learn humility toward others. We have, uh, we we learn humility from the humility of Jesus for us. So let's consider this: What has Jesus done for you? When you're in that moment, when you're called to humility but you're feeling proud, called to serve but you don't want to serve, called to forgive when it's hard to forgive. Think of this. What has Jesus done for you? He humbled himself for you. How much did he humble himself for you? He was in the form of God. He was very God of very God from all eternity, there in heaven, with Father, Son, Holy Spirit, there in, in, his, uh, in, uh, in glory, in Um Worshipped by the angels, ceaselessly. Jesus is the one of whom the angels are singing in Isaiah 6, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. He's surrounded with praise and and glory. That's who he is. A number of years ago, I was uh, visiting my cousins in North Carolina and I heard their pastor, Nathan Trice, um, preaching a sermon on the humility of Jesus in John 13. And, some of his words there uh, uh, have stuck with me ever since. He was talking about this course where Jesus is washing his disciples' feet. And, and he made this point. He said, you know, we get used to hearing about Jesus humbling himself for us. And we start to think, well, of course, he humbles himself for us. That's his job. Isn't that Jesus' job, to humble himself for us? But he, he said, no, that's not his job. That's, that, that's the last thing we should expect Jesus to do for us, the eternal Son of God, did not owe it to us. It's not what we should have expected from him, to humble himself. It's the very opposite of what he was supposed to do in a sense. He's supposed to be worshipped and exalted in glory forever and ever, not stoop down low and become a servant. We'd be surprised to hear that the president was cleaning the White House bathrooms. Right? That's not his job. We'd be surprised to see Elon Musk in one of his Tesla factories scrubbing the floor on the night shift. That's not his job. But think of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's not his job to humble himself. One of my favorite Christmas carols puts it so well Thou who wast rich, beyond all splendor, all for love's sake, becamest poor. Thrones for a manger didst surrender, sapphire paved courts stable floor the infinite eternal son of God did not count his position as something to be exploited for his own ends and something to hang on to and grasp onto but he willingly gladly humbled himself for our sakes he emptied himself he didn't stop being God he emptied himself not by subtraction but by addition took to himself the form of a servant a human form became a man didn't become a king of men which would have been humility enough didn't come and born in a palace and surrounded by, by uh, riches and position and power. He came as a servant. A poor, humble, lowly birth. And he, he gave himself to do the most humiliating thing possible. Suffer for us. Die for us. And not once... Did he ever complain? He never murmured. He never said, I didn't sign up for this. This isn't my job. This isn't what I'm supposed to be doing. I'm the son of God. Don't don't these people realize this? And he doesn't do it begrudgingly. He does it willingly. The text says he humbled himself. He did it by his own choice. He did it cheerfully. He chose humility over and over and over. Every single day on this earth, Throughout his earthly ministry, he chose willingly and gladly to humble himself and humble himself and humble himself, even though it's the opposite of what he deserved. And the darker and harder and lower the path got, he kept going. All the way to the cross. All the way to the grave. All the way to experiencing the wrath of God for our sakes. And he died a shameful, humiliating death under the curse of God, his body tortured with agony and his soul so much more so racked with the infinite intensity of the wrath of God poured out on him for the sins of us. And it's not what he deserved. It's what we deserved, right? We think sometimes, humbling myself to serve that person is beneath me. That's not what I deserve. That's not my job. But what we do deserve is the cross. What we do deserve is to be where Christ was and to suffer what he suffered. And uh, uh, we do not deserve any good thing. We're claimless creatures of the dust, sinners who deserve God's wrath and nothing but God's wrath. We don't deserve a shred of joy and blessing. But Jesus comes. He takes that. He takes what we deserve. He takes our job going to suffer for our sins. He takes that, and he does it. And while we stood by and watched in our pride and heaped curses on him, thinking this Savior was too far beneath us, he took what we deserved. So he could give us what he deserved. Eternal life in the presence of God. No wonder God delighted in him. Raised him up and gives him the highest position and the name above every name. And no wonder every tribe and tongue and nation will sing the praises of Jesus forever and forever. There's never been such gracious humility and condescension out of love. And so this is what we're called to have. The same mind of Christ, willing to humble ourselves as he humbled himself graciously and cheerfully for others. And this is why we're supposed to have it. Because this is what Christ did for us. So, so, so gaze on Christ. Look at Christ. Remember, remember what he has done for you and how he's humbled himself for you. And make that your attitude by his grace towards each other. Let's pray. Lord, we are in awe of the gracious humility of our Lord Jesus Christ. And we are full of thankfulness that he took what we deserved and has given us what he deserved. Lord, we pray that we would never insist on our rights, our privileges, but that we would humble ourselves. Give us the very mind of Christ, that cheerful humility, humble service uh, for your sake. Lord, we cannot work this in ourselves. Our hearts are bent on ourselves unless you work in us. So we pray that you would do this good and gracious work by your almighty power. Transform us to be more like our Savior. We pray in His name. Amen.